Well, good morning to everyone. It's great to see you. Great to be able to be here with you today. Um, I was in my office just before trying feverishly to make a couple of changes, and one of the ones that I removed was it was a beautiful fall morning because at the time it was raining only to turn around, and now it's a beautiful fall morning. So, uh, As many of you know, we're in a series right now titled Say Yes which is meant to challenge us to consider what does it mean for us to say yes to God? What does it mean for us to say yes to one another? What does it mean to say yes to the world that God loves? And what does it mean to do all these things in the light of the great yes that God has already said to us in Jesus Christ? Now, I, I feel relatively certain uh, that most of you have probably heard of or are familiar with the story that we just read. In fact, as it was being read, I felt like some veggie tales were going to come walking through, <laughs> some life size. So I have a feeling that you know uh, this story. It comes, of course, from the book of Daniel. And like many of the tales in the book of Daniel, It really is truly a classic. It pits good against evil, the worship of the one true God against the worship of idols. The lines are drawn and the choices are stark and clear. Now, as I was pondering the passage, I kept thinking about different scenes in movies and literature that I remember uh, from uh, being exposed to it over time. Some of it fictitious, some of it rooted in history. One scene that kept running through my mind was from the movie Luther, which was a, a depiction of the 16th century reformer Martin Luther, who was played by Joseph Fiennes. Uh, a miscast, if ever there was one, for that particular role. That is, that's funny, trust me. Uh, he is in a scene being asked to recount, uh, recant excuse me, his faith. He's been dragged before the authorities of the Catholic Church, and he responds famously, I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God Help me. Amen. Moments like these, whether historical or fictional, are moments of of defiance. They're moments of saying no. But they can also be moments of saying yes. In fact, sometimes I think we have to say no so that we can truly say yes. And that is certainly the case in our story here. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that much of the book of Daniel as a whole could be described in that manner, saying no to say yes. Saying no to the pretensions of empire. Saying no to the ways of violence and arrogance saying no to treating people like commodities and possessions. 
saying no to the inhumanity and brutality of power politics, saying no to all of these things and many more besides so that one can say yes to what truly matters, to the God of life and the way of peace. It probably comes as no surprise with what I've just said and maybe your own familiarity with the book, but Daniel is by far the most politically provocative book in the whole of the Hebrew Bible and arguably in the whole Christian Bible. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 6, consist of court tales or stories about Daniel and his companions and the ways that they had to negotiate the realities of living in exile. Familiar scenes like Daniel in the lion's den or our story about the three friends and the fiery furnace or the mysterious handwriting that shows up on the wall of the king's palace in chapter 5. All of these are set in political contexts with very stark coloring. There is little doubt left to the imagination regarding the choices that the key characters are being asked to make. That tone and the setting of having to make stark choices, that is intensified even more if you turn to the second half of the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, where the kingdom of God is pitted against beastly and destructive kingdoms. Only there we hear about this confrontation no longer through courtly tales, but through disturbing and otherworldly apocalyptic images. And this political quality, by the way, of Daniel, it hasn't been lost in the history of interpretation, both for Jews and Christians. Daniel's stories have been taken up by Jewish communities as they have sought to resist imperial attempts to eradicate their ways of life. And later, Christians also took up the book of Daniel as they tried to live under threat of persecution. In fact, the first commentary written on the Old Testament by a Christian was written on the book of Daniel. And it was in the context of a Roman persecution happening at the end of the second century. And of course, not without sadness and irony, the stories of Daniel have also proven useful for Jews as they faced persecution by Christians and their political institutions, whether from the Middle Ages or the modern world, all the way up to and including Auschwitz and the Shoah. Now, much like the films or the plays that many of us are drawn to, this really is a book of stark contrasts and heady drama. And notwithstanding that most of us, we don't live our lives in those situations all the time. Nevertheless, I do think these stories have much to teach us about what it means to say yes 
in our everyday life. Now, obviously, our passage is quite long. Uh, but like a good Baptist, that's also a joke, but, it's, but real, I plan to offer you three observations about how this story might speak into our own different contexts to help us to discern what it means to say yes. And the three observations are this. The first is to remember to whom you belong. The second is to remember the way to which you have been called. And the third is to walk in trust, come what may. Now, my first observation is rooted in the first climactic moment in the story, which is the response of the three young men to the threats of Nebuchadnezzar. This is happening in verses 16 through 18. Our story tells us that Nebuchadnezzar has erected an enormous golden statue and commanded all peoples in the empire to bow down and worship it. The picture is one of political theater where peoples and rulers and even the musical instruments of the many ethnicities that had been subdued by by the Babylonian empire, all of these things are gathered together on this massive plain and marshaled to bring glory to the king and his empire. The scholars are divided as to whether what is imagined here was a statue or perhaps more likely an obelisk or a stele, a flat slab that would have had writing on it. Whether it was an image of a god or even perhaps an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself is not clear. In the end, though, it doesn't really matter because the real issue is the issue of power and loyalty. To whom do you belong? When Nebuchadnezzar hears from some of his priests that Daniel's companions refuse to comply with his orders, he chooses to test them. Rather than asking them for an answer about their refusal of the king's order, he puts them in a position where they will have to act. Debate is over. Bow down or burn. They will either have to bow down when the music sounds or they will be thrown into a fiery furnace. And to put a fine point on the choice, Nebuchadnezzar ends by saying, and what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? With this, they are brought face to face with a command to conform themselves to the way that Nebuchadnezzar sees them. They are his subjects. They belong to him. They must obey his commands and no other. But these three young men, they don't see it that way. They refuse this demand and they answer, oh Nebuchadnezzar, you don't want to have a debate? Fine. We have no need to present a defense in this matter. 
If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Now these words have inspired numerous resistance movements and acts of defiance in history. But I think they also express a deeper wisdom for everyday life. And what I want to draw your attention to is the underlying assertion in their answer. Notwithstanding that they have now been given Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we're told about this back in chapter 1, and they've even been serving as stewards in the government. Nevertheless, they do not belong ultimately to Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, they are Jews. They are sons of the house of Israel. They are loyal to Yahweh. That is the one to whom they really belong. And what makes a Jew a Jew? is that they do not serve other gods. They do not worship idols. Whether God acts now to save them or not, this is who they are. This is who they belong to. Saying yes means remembering to whom you belong. When faced with choices that will shape your character. Remember to whom you belong, the God of life. And my second observation sort of builds, I suppose, on this first one, and that is that they remember the way to which they have been called. And I really want to emphasize this point and say that it's just as important as the first in part because so many things, often really bad things, have been done in the name of God or faith or religion. that I think we have to acknowledge that just appealing to the divine doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be faithful to the way of God. So what is the way of life to which we are called. I think our story makes this point very subtly, actually. And perhaps there's some other sections in Daniel that pick it up. What I mean here is simply this, that the scene that unfolds here is a scene of nonviolent resistance. Our protagonists do not take up arms nor do they threaten to take up arms. Rather, they follow the way of shalom. Like Jesus, their commitment to God isn't just in words. It's in the refusal to live like the empires and the gods that seek to claim them. They don't overcome those gods and empires by mimicking them. No, they commit themselves to the way of peace.
And therefore, there is no hint in our story of them taking up arms or seeking to act like their oppressors. Now, to commit yourself to the way of peace in a violent world is to take a profound risk. Not only because it means not adapting to the ways of the world, but because it might mean learning to care about others as much as we care about ourselves. Maybe you or I are not faced with actual physical violence, but there can be other forms of violence or dehumanization that threaten or tempt us. Do I join in with the gossip or the vitriol that spreads ill, Ill feelings but ultimately does nothing to bring healing or wholeness or repair? Do I take advantage of my colleagues or my friends or my family? Do I work the system for my own benefit without concern for anyone else? Do I refuse to even contemplate forgiveness when I have been wronged, let alone admit when I was in the wrong? These are but a few of the pedestrian examples that I think we could share where we are offered the possibility of following a different way of life, a way committed to shalom, committed to the wholeness and the healing of everyone. To say yes then is also to remember the way to which you are called, the humble way of Jesus. And last but not least is the fact that we are all called to walk in trust, come what may. Well, I think this point is made quite clearly in the response by these young men that whether God is going to rescue them or not, they will choose to walk the way that they've been called by their God. The text tells us that in keeping with the violence that we already know about Nebuchadnezzar, he becomes enraged and orders the overheating of a crematorium even though that will mean the death of his own men. And Daniel's friends are then immediately bound up. The text talks about all the clothes that they have on. It's, uh, it sort of jumps out at you because typically people would be stripped, but he wants this done immediately. They're bound up and tossed in the furnace, whereupon the king comes to realize that there is another in the fire with them. Now, there are many details in this short scene. There are many contrasts between Nebuchadnezzar's pretensions to divinity and the true power of the God of life. But what I really want to call your attention to is that these young men are not spared the furnace. They are thrown in. They are thrown into the fire. 
And truly, astonishingly, they do not try to flee from the flames. They have to be called out of the furnace by the king. The king sees four people unbound and walking together. And that image of walking together, that could be meant to invoke to us the image of wise people conferring together. It's not entirely clear if the fourth is Yahweh himself or an angel, the angel of Yahweh, or the Son of Man. All of these are options and all of these have been put forward. What is clear is that God has entered into the trial by fire with these men. They have not been spared the furnace. But nevertheless, God is with them in the midst of it. How many, how many furnaces and how many floods have we collectively and individually traveled through? Too many to count, I would imagine. Many of you, many of us, know what it means not to be spared the flames. And yet, here also is where we find wise counsel from our story. Though we do not know the future, we are called to walk in trust. Trust that even in the darkness, even in the consuming flame and the drowning flood, there will be a way through. That in the midst of those flames, God will see us through. Saying yes to God, to one another, and to our neighbor does not mean that we will not be called into trials. Sometimes they will be of our own making or the making of others, and sometimes they will simply just come upon us. But saying yes to God means trusting that even in the midst of those trials, there will be another one present in the midst of the flames, standing near, encouraging, loving, and showing us the way through. Remembering to whom we belong and the way to which we are called will indeed mean trusting that God will be with us even when we cannot see the next step in the dark. I pray that you may hear that living voice in your own lives and hearts and that we together as a community will hear the living voice of God who beckons us into a different way of life, the way of shalom. Amen.